the house lights go down and the curtain opens. It opens to an empty stage. But not too long after the curtain opens, a lone man walks out on stage. Enter stage right. He looks poor and tired and dejected. And he just feels like giving up and hates life. Suddenly a group of hooligans darts out from the wing, stage left. They pounce on the poor man like cats on a June bug. They, they jump on him. And they begin to beat him, and they tear off his shirt, and they take his money, and then they exit stage left just as they came. The man lies center stage, breathing but half unconscious. The music fades to silence. And it is quiet. From stage left, a very well-dressed clergy walks out on stage. Her robe is neatly pressed, and she has one of those real pretty, multicolored, uh, you know, sashes that high church Protestant priest, pastor, minister, rector, victors wear, the, the real pretty, colorful ones. And she adjusts it as she walks out and sort of presses it with her hands. It's just so pretty. She even likes what it's called. Vestment. Such a great word. Vestment. And she pats it. Oh, she just loves it. She's walking from her condominium to the church building a block away. And she sees the man lying there, bleeding and shirtless. And she thinks to herself, because after all, it's the way that she's been trained to think about such situations. She thinks, how did he let himself come to this? I wonder what kind of bad life choices he made. She thought about calling the police when she got to her office, you know, to deal with the vagrant. But when she got there, someone met her at the door to tell her that the cross on the altar was a little off-centered. She needed to go fix it. So she went and centered it and forgot all about the bleeding and shirtless man. Later that morning, the irony was not lost on her when she told her congregation that during the sermon, she would be preaching from Luke 10. 25 
through 37. About an hour after she walked by, a rabbi walked by on his way to brunch. He did not even notice the bleeding and shirtless man, never even noticed as he walked by, head buried in his phone. But then, someone else walked on stage. Do you know stories like this one? I bet you do. You might even know how that story ends. Do you know what we call them? Those who study stories and storytelling and movies and plays. They call stories like this melodramas. The textbook definition of melodrama is actually pretty good. A sensational, dramatic piece with exaggerated characters and exciting events intended to appeal to the emotions. The first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes play out like a melodrama. This is wisdom's autobiography, where wisdom even at times seems to turn on itself and call its own existence into question. Right after the introducer leaves the stage, after 1, 1 through 11, the person meant to introduce the preacher who's going to be preaching the message starting in 1, 12, the teacher starts, and this is how the teacher starts. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on humanity. I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Melodrama. A man looks for meaning. A woman finds meaning in God. Man discovers that life has been devoted to too many meaningless things. You ever been there in your life? Have you ever just kind of surveyed everything and thought, man, there's a lot of meaningless stuff around? Could say, raise your hand if you've ever felt that way. And those of you who haven't raised your hands, give it time. Because at times, you start looking at everything and think, what does it all mean? What's the meaning of it all? And this is where this person, this teacher, is. They find that seeing the world for what it is, is actually the most meaningful thing of all. And don't miss that, because that's a big one. They look at the world and say, it's all meaningless, and that is meaningful. With me so far? I'm not yet, but trying to get all this. And this realization, this, this, is, this is one of the best things that Ecclesiastes does. This realization is called, in Ecclesiastes itself, a gift from God. He used the word burden 
but I think it's, it's, it's meant to elicit that emotion. It feels. You know what it feels like? You know, you know what it feels like to know and, and see there's still a lot of meaninglessness? It's, okay, it's knowing the difference between the words further and farther and then sitting and watching the news and newscasters who don't know the difference and it just stings the ears. It's that kind of feeling. Or it's the burden of having to sit through a movie or a play and watch the whole melodrama unfold where the bad guys always lose and the good guys always win and money is never an issue, but then having to go back to daily life where all of those things don't happen the way they happen in the movies. And that, my dear friends, is exactly why we need these stories. It's exactly why we need these stories. We need reminders that sometimes it all works out. And good people are rewarded for doing the right thing. And it's exactly why we need Ecclesiastes and worship services in Jesus. Because the truth sets us free. The second introduction of the teacher contains one of my favorite lines. He just keeps going. After one of the many times he says the whole chasing after the wind and meaningless thing, 115, what is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone else who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and also of folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more knowledge, the more grief. It's like knowing the difference between your and your. Knowing the difference between there, there, and there. The more knowledge, the more grief. But then there's a deeper truth. A deeper truth in getting it all right. Maybe the story is not in the expression of the grief and knowledge, but maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's in these stories where good makes sense, where wisdom works, where good wins. Melodramas appeal to the emotions. And few passages of Scripture appeal to the emotions more than the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Because of all the emotions these opening lines appeal to, no one, no other one surfaces as you read these first two chapters quite like the one that tries to get you to argue and get you to defend and get you to curl up your nose 
It's like when Ecclesiastes 1 through 2 was written long ago, it had no idea that it was specifically written, or maybe at least most appropriate, for right now. That Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 may make more sense in 2020 and 2021 than it ever did. Because you can't hear the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes without saying at points, well, not quite. Or, well, not always. Because life is not always meaningless. It does have meaning. And that's why it's important to understand that this little book is a piece of wisdom literature. It's not law. It's not meant to be read that way. It's meant to be read like the book of Proverbs before it. It's general wisdom. It's one size fits all. Not. It's just not. Wisdom allows for exceptions. I'll give you an example. What we read at the beginning of the second introduction a minute ago, what is twisted cannot be straightened. It's in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 1.15. You just heard it. But melodrama is going to tell us a story about this one time when twisted got straightened. That's the job of these stories in context. There was this one time where something totally out of sorts got worked out. You remember that time when that happened? Wisdom can't be straightened. Well, sometimes it can. Peter Brooks is a literary theorist, writes about melodrama, and this is my favorite thing I've ever heard about melodrama. He says it acts as an art form by creating what he calls victory over repression. If we think of Ecclesiastes as melodrama, and so too the teaching of Jesus, it's a world imagined from the mind-slash-mouth of a sage rather than a teacher of a law, it helps us express our deepest emotions from joy at the simple things, eat, drink, enjoy, as well as our disappointments when the world does not live up to our expectations. It allows us and even invites us to express ourselves rather than the way we've been trained in some religious circles to suppress our feelings. We're more primed for this sage approach to Scripture than we think. And do you know why? It's because of the preaching of Jesus. Jesus preached more like a sage, rarely like a teacher of the law. Jesus told stories, and in Jesus' stories, many of which are melodramas, these characters that immediately get our attention go through something that was not supposed to happen. What is twisted gets straightened. And you've seen, you've, you've watched while Jesus preaches and 
touches people and heals people. You watched the people. How'd that happen? That's not supposed to happen. It's melodrama. It's their own purpose. It's the beauty of the reality of Jesus stepping down into a world and doing something that we've been told all along you can't do. Blind people can suddenly see. The disabled children of God are given legs to walk. A boy meets Jesus, and the boy has a shriveled hand. And now he can throw a baseball. And yet, we try as best we can to wedge Jesus' preaching into lists and do's and don'ts. But parables, for example, absolutely positively refuse this taxonomy. They just won't do it. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, like the preaching of Jesus, concerns itself with what matters most as highlighted by folly or the lies and what matters least, the temporary things, the melodrama of Ecclesiastes gives voice to all our emotions. And I'm here to tell you, it's what we need the most right now. We need not only permission, but we need an invitation to feel what we are feeling. And as we sing this song, it puts us smack dab in the presence of God and one another to see the things that really have meaning. It's like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't life more important than food? And it's no coincidence, my friends, that Jesus says that right after He offers a teaching about not storing up treasures on earth. Ecclesiastes informs that approach to life. So here is the rest of the introduction to His deathbed speech. The whole melodramatic autobiography of wisdom in one chapter that still does not quite tell the whole story. So here's Ecclesiastes 2. I thought in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem, the delights of the hearts of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me in all of this. My wisdom stayed with me. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. Sound familiar? There's more. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What more can a king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly. Just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will also overtake me. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life. Because the work that has been done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor I had under, sun, under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it to want someone who's not worked for it. This too is meaningless. And a great misfortune. What does man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Happy Father's Day. Now the introduction is almost done, but not quite. There's one more little paragraph. And if you have thought at any point during that reading of Ecclesiastes, because I get it, but if you've ever thought at any point during that reading of Ecclesiastes, dear God, when is this sermon going to be over? Wait till you hear the end. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the one who pleases God, God gives wisdom knowledge, and happiness. 
But to the sinner, he gives the tasks of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. As I mentioned recently, movie director Christopher Nolan of Tenet, Dunkirk, talks about the films of Stanley Kubrick, like 2001, Dr. Strangelove, and says that they, like melodramas, are not always meant to be understood as much as they are meant to be experienced. They're meant to be felt, to feel them. Think of melodramas that are meant to be felt. You ever seen Mrs. Miniver? My grandmother sat in the theater in the early 1940s while my grandfather was traipsing across Europe and watched Mrs. Miniver. You don't think that she had feelings? You ever seen the best years of our lives? It's, it's Shane. It's East of Eden. It's Life is Beautiful. Do you sit down to watch West Side Story and pick it apart to learn lessons? Do you cry through terms of endearment and ordinary people and Titanic in order to make lists and memes? No, these stories are meant to be felt down deep inside you. And that's where we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes, and believe it or not, in the teachings of Jesus. It teaches us how to live. These are not intellectual exercises where we achieve status and one-upsmanship. It's not what these stories are meant to do. They're meant to be lived. This is the teacher in Ecclesiastes 2 that we just read saying to himself, I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave my things to a bunch of fools. But you know why he feels that? It's it's all over Ecclesiastes. The context for that verse, it's all over. It's just scattered all over. It's written all over the book of Ecclesiastes. Because he realizes when he looks at all this stuff that he's got to leave to all the fools, that all that stuff is meaningless. This is another little melodrama that we call the prodigal son. Who gets to the end of this story early. Dad sitting in the living room thinking, man, when I die, i got to leave this stuff to a bunch of fools. And he walks in and says, Dad, can I have my stuff early? Sure, why not? Just take it. It's all meaningless anyway. And so he does. I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect melodrama. It's a total twist on the story. Dad, can I have my inheritance early? Well, you can't. Why not? I'm not dead yet. Story doesn't happen that way. It's supposed to happen that way but it doesn't. It's melodrama. And here in Ecclesiastes 2, just like that story in Luke 15, things happen that we didn't see coming. Because you know what happens at the end of the prodigal son story? Mercy. You know who's supposed to be acting out all this stuff in the context of a meaningless world, it's us. It's the followers of Jesus. We're the ones who are supposed to be going around doing what the world doesn't expect. 
to provide a glimpse of meaning. One star in a dark sky, one little glimpse of meaning. Here in Ecclesiastes 2, when he looks at all this stuff and realizes that most of it is going to wind up in a goodwill warehouse somewhere, he speaks the punchline. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? Melodrama is victory over repression. This is the gentle repression of systems that mean well, but systems that would actually take people who are supposed to be the thought leaders and the spiritual leaders and the leaders of leaders of all these people, these systems that walk by a bleeding and shirtless man and then encourage you to assume that you know his story. Or walk by a woman crying at church and thinking to yourself, oh, she's just the emotional type. Or to walk by a man at church who is singing, here I am to worship, but he's still trying to figure out if he even believes in God. So Jesus, the ultimate living melodrama, puts the whole world on display with His life, His teachings, even His death and resurrection. And in so doing, claims victory over the ultimate repression, even death itself. Jesus equips us to be the ones who walk on stage and see the dying man and in the name of Jesus give that dying man lying on center stage exactly what we ourselves have received from the hand of Jesus. And you know what it is? Life. And in this story, we are meant to live. And I'm not talking about this story. I'm talking about this story. We're meant to live, even if we can't understand it. Our story, story of life itself, life that at times gets dark. So much meaninglessness. But wait until you hear the end of the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, But who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by 
on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. Next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise.